everybody, welcome back to Killer Serials. And as you've heard from our most recent podcast, Tony Jones is taking a bit of a break. I'm your host, Ryan Parker. And we're taking this time to dive into a show that I really love, and at least the first season. Uh, I, as I said before, I'm slow watching this uh, delayed gratification. It's a Sundance Channel series called Rectify, which just reached the its its end um, a couple months ago after four seasons of critically acclaimed, but uh, a series, but feels like it still kind of flew under the radar. And so it's on Netflix. All four seasons are streaming. So hopefully, people can get a um, get a chance to watch that. Uh, we're having conversations with doctorate of ministry students from Lancaster Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania um, about this series. They are uh, in a class called Faith Formation in the Internet World, where we are talking about um, doing faith formation in digital and social media spaces. And because uh, TV is such kind of a ubiquitous thing now, as it's become digitized through Netflix and Hulu and Amazon, and it's on our phones and on our tablets, not just uh, in our homes, uh, we thought it would be fitting to walk through a series together as a class. And so for this episode, uh, we are lucky to have Mark Riesinger with us. Uh, welcome, Mark. Thanks, Ryan. Glad to be here. Give us a little sense of where you are and what you're up to and, and all that good stuff. Yeah, I just started with the Doctor of Ministry program at Lancaster Seminary, and I'm currently a United Methodist elder serving uh, Beaver Memorial, United Methodist Church in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. It's kind of north-central Pennsylvania, the home of Bucknell University. Nice. And what's your—because I didn't ask you on campus, what's your focus for your DMIN? What's the kind of area of ministry that you're interested in? Well, um, my major project seems to be trending towards uh, a conversation specifically around the United Methodist itinerant system, uh-huh. uh, the, the way that United Methodist pastors are appointed to churches on an annual basis. The potential is there to be moved. And specifically, I'm interested in how that affects clergy families. Um, as clergy, we sign up for this whenever we become United Methodist uh, elders. And spouses, to some extent, know what they're getting into. Kids are born into this where there's the potential literally to be moved every year. And it's like it's, a military system, isn't it? It is. Yep, very much so. And uh, I'm interested in, in seeing if that system is still relevant, if it's useful, um, and how it has affected particularly clergy families. When you think about digital spaces and social media spaces um, and doing kind of faith formation and maintaining relationships, do, would that factor into any of your thought process about this? Does the, does the changing nature of the way we communicate and engage influence the way you think about that system? Yes, uh, absolutely. It's a whole new ball game with social media, places like Facebook, um, Typically, whenever you are moved from a church or from a community to another community, they ask you to separate yourself from the church. Really? And, and not to go back for a year, two years. Um, don't go back for weddings. Don't go back for funerals. Just really create a space to allow the new pastor to establish him or herself. And so now with social media, it gets a little trickier. <laughs> do, you, do you unfriend everybody from your previous church? 
do you maintain friends but not comment on anything that you see? Um, how do you allow the new pastor to create the space to become pastor but still uh, maintain maybe friendships or relationships, certainly, that you had at the previous location? So the social media has brought in a whole new uh, element to the conversation. And you're talking about a relationship between pastor and congregants that can potentially be deeper than any other relationship except for perhaps family or doctor-patient, you know, uh, confidentiality. Sure. I mean, that's got to that's be a painful process. Sure. You're present with people when children are born. You walk with them as loved ones die. You go with them through the funerals, you celebrate weddings, you counsel, um, you're with them on an almost daily basis. And then at some point you move and you're asked to kind of sever those relationships. So it's a tricky balance in the social media. It just makes it all that more challenging. I know we're here to talk about Rectify, but I feel like I could talk about this for 30 minutes. And it also <laughs> yeah. feels like there should be a TV show about this. <laughs> this that sounds like a good idea. This is all helpful in me forming my major project focus. Yeah. Well, listen, you've, you talked about, um, in, in your post about the show through the Moodle site, we've, uh, encouraged each other to, um, leave reactions to themes or episodes that, that resonated with you. And you were fairly quick to, to jump on the episode, episode five of the first season actually called drip drip. But in our, you know, in our conversations, we talk about the goat man. Yes, and so at, just to set up a little background, we um, are engaging with the show, which is about a character named Daniel Holden, who has spent twenty years of his life since an eighteen-year-old on death row for the rape and murder of a young girl named Hannah, and new DNA evidence um, kind of nullifies that conviction. Uh, he's released back into his small town, small hometown in Georgia, and that's really the first episode. We get right into it, and um, as Coley pointed out in our conversation, um, each episode takes place over the course of a day. And uh, if we consider episode five, we're about five days out from his release, and he has an interesting experience, an encounter in the middle of the night. He wakes Mm -hmm. up, Daniel wakes up and goes walking. He actually goes to look at Hannah's house, Mm -hmm. uh, her childhood home where her mom still lives, and then as he continues his you know, middle of the night walk, he encounters uh, a nameless man, right? That we that we mm-hmm. affectionately call the Goat Man, and so uh, the Goat Man um, basically recruits Daniel to help him steal some goats, mm-hmm. and they have uh, a kind of a an all night journey, so to speak. It feels very fantastical. I know, I know mm-hmm. we'll talk about that in a minute, and uh, he ends up paying him. And then Daniel basically goes about his day. We could talk about some more things that hap- happened in episode five. But tell me about, of all the things that happened in this first season, what was it about this episode that, that kind of sp- sparked your imagination? I think, just as you mentioned, this, this weirdness of this episode and the strangeness I felt of the encounter with this, this goat man. And throughout the, the season, there is the the imagery of dreams and what's reality. And this episode begins, uh, as you said, with him, he's kind of sitting in his room at 3 a.m. And he's having a a memory or a dream of back in prison when he's looking through his cell door and a prisoner across the hall starts banging his head against his own door until it's all bloody. 
Um, Probably the most got, disturbing shot of the first season. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Quite an intro into this episode. <laughs> and then he gets up and leaves at 3 a.m. And uh, as you said, goes to Hannah's mother's home. Uh, and then just out of nowhere, this pickup truck with the goat man shows up and picks him up for a ride. And it was just so weird and so strange and very different than what I had seen in the other episodes. It just really struck me. It's, it's putting too fine a point on it, maybe, and at the risk of doing that. Talk to me about the biblical metaphor of goat and mm-hmm. where those inter- where that intersects with this story, if you can. Mm-hmm. Well, sure. There's the, the image uh, in the, the Old Testament of the scapegoat, where the, the sins of the community are put on to a goat who's then sent out of the city limits. And obviously we get that term from that idea of of dumping your sins upon this one who will take them and wander off. Um, And then you see, obviously, in the New Testament, uh, paralleling that, we talk about the Lamb of God with Jesus who takes on the sins of the world with his death and resurrection. Um, And the imagery of goats, too, as I thought about it, um, even in Greek mythology, it, what came to me was uh, Pan, the great god who's yeah. the god of shepherds and flocks and who himself is is part goat. Yeah. So there's this interesting thing where we the write, the authors of the you know the writers of the series could have had uh, any midnight jaunt, right? You know, I'm joking here, they could have gone cow tipping or whatever. <laughs> but they do this thing, and they and so I don't think it's it's lost on them, um, and especially in the religious, the kind of hyper religious community, in which this takes place, that there is this notion of the scapegoat, and mm-hmm. that there are so many people in that community who are guilty of, let's just say sins, because we're talking on a religious podcast, um, that they're basically using Daniel to kind of deflect attention from. Right, whether it's the analysis of their own life, or because they don't want other people to be aware of what they're doing. I mean, I think of the senator and his affair, right? Yes, yeah. Um, and you think of the the guy who's who actually may have, well, one of the guys who participated that night that Hannah died. You know, he kills his the only witness, yeah. right? Yes. So there are ways. If the attention can stay on Daniel, nobody has to look at me. Sure. Uh, he was an easy target to pin, uh, allegedly, and uh, we don't know at this point whether he committed the murder or not. He's released on the, the technicality, but he was an easy target at that time to pin this on, to put him away, and to forget about it, and then everyone else goes about their lives. You, one of the things that you talked about that you appreciated in this episode was that tension between the real and the imaginary. Uh-huh. And I wonder if... I think about the... Scripture sometimes, right? You know, Marcus mm-hmm. Borg in his book, uh, I think it was it like reading the Bible for the first time or something, where mm-hmm. he talks about it doesn't have to be factually true for it to be true, or it doesn't have mm-hmm. to be factual to be true. Um, are there are there different messages that are delivered uh, in this scenario if it's real or if it's imaginary? Does that make sense? Like, mm-hmm. do you take away anything different if it? If this was a midnight jaunt that actually happened, or if it's just something that that Daniel yeah. had in a fever pitch, you know, right? Well, he he questions uh, a couple of times 
Um, he asks if he feels that he was wrestling with himself. And um, obviously, the the scene when he and the goat man, they, they see the, the statue, and then they begin to wrestle. And obviously, that brings to mind... Um, Jacob wrestling with with God, yep. or with an angel or man. It's not clear uh, in Genesis that story, um, but Jacob leaves that wounded. His hip is wounded, and he kind of limps away from it. Um, and Daniel leaves the fight with the goat man um, with a knot on his head. Later, they're in the truck, and yeah. he says, "Then I put a knot on your head," and he yeah. thinks it's hilarious. He starts cracking up. Yeah. So he leaves. Um, changed from that, and there are obviously clues that that something happened because his clothes are are dirty, and he's got this wad of dirty money that um, people see. So something happened. Um, if it was in his mind, um, yes. Is it wrestling with himself? Is it trying to? Uh, yeah, I don't know. This is. Again, in a show that's kind of bathed in, I think one of the things that Rectify does well, and feel free to comment not just on the goat man, uh-huh. um, but anything that you that jumped out at you as in the first season as a whole, but the show does a great job of being religious without being on the nose, mm-hmm. um, of, com- of having deep commentary on our prison system without mm-hmm. ever having any character actually talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, other than Daniel and Teddy Jr., I think, right? And the Teddy mm-hmm. Jr.'s fascination with prison rape. Right. Um, so talk to me about the that notion of kind of being, or maybe I, maybe it's better said that rectify spiritual but not religious. Mm-hmm. But again, that's not <laughs> quite true either, right? Because in this episode, we have a very religious practice of right. baptism. Yeah, and I wonder what you make about that tension in Daniel's um, uh, experience. Yeah, it's almost as if he's uh, searching to know that he's uh, awake, to know that he's alive. That this isn't just a dream. Seemingly, probably in his years in prison, he had dreams of being out. Is this another one of those, or is this real? Um, he asks the goat man when he leaves, are you real? <laughs> and he's, the goat yeah. man laughs and says, I'll, I want whatever you're smoking, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, and then after the baptism is when he really, talking to Tawny, he really seems like he feels alive, he says. And he feels, says he feels like he was wrestling with himself. And he says, maybe there is a God. Um, and there's just, yeah, obviously the kind of the evangelical the heavy-handed scene of the baptism in Tawny with what some might say kind of a naive faith that she can be the one to save him or God save him through her. And um, Amantha on the other side, she comes to the baptism but yeah. watches it from a distance That's with right. some kind of fear and trembling and just trepidation as to what this means. Did you go, were you cradle Methodist? I was, yes. So, did did that revival scene? I mean, th- that's not something you ha- has that something that you experienced, not personally, but uh, in in your ministry or in your church life. Not, excuse me, not to that extent. Um, I think that scenes like that you you've seen more prevalently and more recently in the South, 
Um, but I do remember as a child having a revival, having speakers come in at my home church. And it was just a, it's a little one room country church and um, having a long weekend of maybe three nights of services uh, not to that extent, not that Pentecostal or evangelical, but having the preaching and talking about the need to, to quote unquote, be saved. And I remember just talking with my parents about that. And I think them expressing that it would be uh, a joy for them. And if I was feeling called to go up during the altar call time to be prayed over and to quote unquote, be saved. And I actually did. <laughs> oh wow! This, this, this just sticks out to me. Now yeah. I don't, I don't have any idea the date or the time. I don't point to that and say this is when I was saved. Then there's some evangelicals in this world that'd be like, "Well, guess what, Mark? I hate to break it to you." <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I—that's a, a memory, kind of a point on the journey for me that that I recall as part of my faith. Now my faith sure. was was given to me, and I already had it prior to showing up. We still went to worship every Sunday and were involved with church. But I feel like I remember that almost this is what I should do, an obligation. I should go up and, and let the, the evangelist or the preacher pray over me. And so I did. I don't know that I feel or remember being particularly changed, but it certainly was an experience. You know, I think one of the, and this is not what Rectify is about, right? It's not about, it's not a conversion narrative, at least so far in the first um, season, but it does a great job in what it doesn't say and and the way it allows characters to just be and but it does this it gives this interesting commentary on that notion that very particular evangelical notion of salvation that it's this kind of one moment in time thing mm-hmm. rather than this journey right tawny thinks hey you're have you've just first off you've just been released from prison Okay, mm-hmm. Let, let's don't worry about that. Let's worry about your salvation, right? <laughs> right. Um, but it, she has this real sense that, look, if you are feeling this way, it can best be channeled into this experience. And then once you have that experience, you're great. You're saved. All your sins have been washed away. But as you pointed out, that conversation with, um, with between Tawny and Daniel after the baptism there's a richness to it and a complexity to it that I think gets at the reality of our spiritual journeys mm-hmm. um, better than most shows. And I wonder if, if you have yeah. more to add to that, to their conversation. Well, one of the interesting things from that conversation and earlier when he goes back to his school and he's sitting there uh, and the, the teachers come out and ask if they can help him, yeah. uh, both that time and in his conversation with Tawny, they offer to give him rides. And I, it just struck me that both times he says, no, I, I would rather walk. And this idea of him taking this journey on his own and walking this path that no one else can walk with him or carry him on. Or, or um, provide a shortcut for. Right. Yeah. yeah. He, he says, no, it's, it's, I'd rather walk. Um, that struck me. And obviously the, <clears throat> the character of Tawny um, – yeah, her excitement that he's going to be baptized when uh, her husband Teddy comes home from a convention. The first thing that he that she says to him is about that there's been a miracle that she's been hanging out with Daniel and he wants to be baptized. And it's just and Teddy's uh, obvious, like, wait a, wait a minute. Right. He comes at it. He says, our church, well, they're the last ones that buy tires from us. That's how he looks yeah. at it. <laughs> you could, it's a, somebody should write ahead. a book on, te- on Tawny and Teddy Jr., 
yeah, it's a very he's very pragmatic and, and goes to church probably because she does, um, and he could take it or leave it. She's got this idea that that everybody needs to be saved and sees nothing wrong with her hanging out with Daniel and having conversations and seeing in his eyes. She said at one one point, I I saw in his eyes that he was looking for absolution. I think she says, you know, staring yeah, deeply into right. his eyes. She has no problem with that, and Teddy Jr. obviously does. Yeah, because Teddy's still not sure that that Daniel's innocent, right? Right. Yes. So, talk to me a little bit about, and this is a personal question, and I'm asking it of everyone that we talk to. Talk to me about the way in which you thought about or um, viewed our prison system before you watched this show. And then to bring it into the show, it has this changed the way that you think about um, the way we interact with uh, quote unquote criminals. Um, I I don't think so. I, I've always seen the flaws in our prison system and the discrepancies in who we put into prison and why. And uh, obviously. Uh, I'm against the death penalty. The United Methodist Church has been strongly against capital punishment for a long time. And so that has been given to me as well. And I think this this show really brings out some of those uh, injustices and imperfections in our justice system. Does it matter that in a show about the potential injustices of the prison system that the lead character is white? I think that's an, an interesting question. Um, it didn't surprise me just because I think that there's generally a lack of diversity and uh, awareness of diversity in um, media, movies, and television. Um, it's interesting that his best friend, Kerwin, obviously is African-American, and he's the one that is executed. We see him going to his death. Right. Um, and, and also and he, very, uh, a very no understanding of why he's there. Yes. Or why anybody else is there. Um, and maybe, again, I, I don't know how much further you've watched in the series, but I've stopped. Um, I'll probably pick up on season two this week, but I stopped short. So I don't know if we'll revisit that friendship and learn why Kerwin is there. Was he also there unjustly? Um, but I was, I was struck, um, this notion of being on death row. Um, and also just in, in general, in prison in general, you can't watch the show, uh, thoughtfully and with an open heart and get past maybe what, two episodes before you realize that this whole system is barbaric. Mm-hmm. Um, and it yet I don't know that that's what the show set out to do. No, but I I don't know. Honestly, I question: Can you stage a film or a television series on death row without it being portrayed as barbaric? Would be my question. Uh, probably. That's a great I, question. Uh, I think about war and war movies, and I think that to some extent. 
uh, and I would consider myself a, a, a nonviolent pacifist person, but to some extent, almost always in war movies, war seems cool. <laughs> I don't know if they can get around making it. It's fast and there's people running and there's you know friendships that are formed. And it's probably very few the war movies that, that portray it in a way that's probably closer to reality, the, the hell that it is. Um, and I would just say kind of comparatively, um, any kind of show that is set on death row, that probably – I don't know if you can make it look cool. <laughs> like war can be made to look fun. Right. Um, I wonder if this is a series – I want to give you an opportunity to – uh, touch on any other of the topics that that were of particular interest to you. Um, if if we don't want to go into more detail, that's fine. Uh, and then I want to close with one uh, another question about the series in your uh, context. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we touched on most of the issues um, that really struck me. I think some of the just the words and the conversation between Daniel and the goat man in this episode where the goat man, um, what does he say? It's the first, one of the first, he, he philosophizes a lot. <laughs> he says, uh, immediately yeah. he says, I know you, he meets Daniel and he sees him and walks him, welcomes him into the truck and says, I know you. And then early in the conversation, he says, not all one who wonder are lost. Yeah. And then when they see the statue, what does he say? It's not. Um, I wrote it down somewhere, but it's it's the it's the, the beauty, beauty that, that kills you, that hurts you most. That hurts you most. Not, yeah, yeah. Not the ugly. Yeah. Um, and Daniel, in these episodes, you've seen that he's a deep thinker. Um, he reads. He quotes First Corinthians. In fact, I think the goat man at one point, whenever he asks him, "Are you going to run them off a cliff?" They're referring to the goats. So so smart, right? The goat man looks at him and says, you read too much. Yeah. <laughs> so that makes me wonder, is this a, in his own mind? Is this a, just a conversation with himself as he wrestles with himself? Because you just – and you said the actor that portrays the goat man does such a wonderful job. He's so rough around the edges and he's kidnapping goats for a reason that I'm not, really not clear necessarily yeah. Yeah, why. I, I, yeah, I don't want to know where those goats were going or what they were for. Yeah, well, he takes the it takes the one into the house. And yeah. That's the only one that like, he still has him in the in the the I don't know the the truck at the end. But he takes the one into the house, and you can hear it kind of screaming. It reminded me of the Silence of the Lambs. Um, you bring the, up yeah, you bring up a great point about his uh, how literate <coughs> Daniel is, and uh-huh. I got to think you know everybody quotes well not everybody but a lot of couples use First Corinthians at their wedding. Uh-huh. And it's and it's written towards the most dysfunctional community, yeah, uh, imaginable, you know, or a, or a highly dysfunctional community, yeah. Um, I think this might be the best use of First Corinthians I've ever seen uh-huh. in TV series or otherwise, because his parent, uh, his mother, and Amantha are hovering over him, and they're like, "But we love you." And rather than saying just I know or whatever, there's this genius use when he says love is patient. Mm-hmm. And he just kind of throws it back in their face, but in a very genuine and respectful way. I just thought that was some super smart writing. Yeah. Well, he says in that scene that he'll be happy 
when he's cleansed. They want him to be happy. And he uh, also, I wrote down in that scene, he says, I'm not even sure if I'm alive. Yeah. Um, and I, I thought it was no idea what to do with that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, interesting too, that he had planned to change clothes. He had his baptism clothes laid out, but then he doesn't have time. And so the same clothes that he wrestled with the goat man in that are dirty and filthy are the ones that he gets baptized. in. now he has the, the robe over top of it, but it's the same clothes. This is it's so good. Okay. Yeah, it's a great. <laughs> You're given all these things that we've just talked about. As if we get to the close of this, and we hit all these high points, right, of storytelling and kind of allusions to all this uh, scriptural, these scriptural elements. Is this a show that you would watch or engage with your faith community? I would, sure. I think that there are so many themes of faith that flow through it and issues around the prison system, as you mentioned, and the death penalty would bring up conversation. Um, I think there are probably a ton of films or shows that you could watch, but this certainly, um, yeah, would would be valuable, I think, in a small group conversation. Um, I would almost say for folks that maybe are a little more secure in their faith, because I think that some of the, the images and the conversations might um, be challenging for those that are new in the faith or that some of the folks might not even get. Yeah, and it does. It has a way of challenging, also, right? Of people who might be assured um, of yeah. of any number of things, right? Whether it be our justice system or faith or what have you, of of challenging those in a way that doesn't feel like they're doing it with a sledgehammer, mm-hmm. right? It's more of a scalpel um, yes. that they're taking to that kind of confidence and. All right, Mark, I want to thank you so much for taking time. I know you're busy uh, with your work and your studies, but thanks for the time, taking the time to chat with us. All right, I appreciate it, Ryan. Thank you. Yeah, thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Killer Serials. We'll be back in a couple of days with another conversation about Rectify. Go watch the show. It's great. Mm-hmm.